0: learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare care related fields to keep you a beat ahead.
1: What is more important, your heart or your brain? And what's more important in medicine? Competence or skin color. I'm Dr. Marilyn Singleton, and welcome to America Out Loud Pulse. We are always a beat ahead. When I applied to medical school, the criteria were the ability to handle the academics and compassion for patients. Yes, medicine was a white male-dominated field at the time. My class had only 13 women out of 132 students. Most schools were aware of the lack of women in medicine. And as of 2019, the majority of medical students are women. At a time when women in medical schools was rare, Johns Hopkins Hospital was an example of how admitting women to a major medical school in the 1890s did not mean lowering standards. It meant giving women an equal opportunity. The story is kind of fun. Hopkins needed money to build the medical school, and four well-to-do women said we'd raise the money, at the time, half a million dollars, on the condition that the medical school would accept women. The benefactors were clear. The entrance requirements were strict and had to be met by both both male and female applicants. Many schools also addressed attracting students from various ethnic groups. They wanted to serve all demographics, but when it came to race, that equal opportunity that we saw back in the 1890s for women became affirmative action. The 1978 Supreme Court Bakke decision held that creating a diverse classroom environment is a compelling state interest under the Equal Protection Clause. So affirmative action programs can take race into account in the admissions process. But politics commandeered diversity. It morphed from students of different backgrounds having the common goal of learning as much as we could absorb and becoming a stellar physician who would deliver compassionate and quality medical care. Now, identity has become the only attribute that we hear about. Achieving diversity in school or the workplace has now taken precedence over excellence. Now, diversity means condemning different kinds of people to a life in their own racial or gender silo. People are no longer seen as individual human beings. So back to my questions. Head and heart go hand in hand. So too, competence and compassion can be found in Black, white, gay, straight, male, and female physicians. We were all meant to work together to deliver great medical care to our patients. My guest and I will talk a little medicine and a lot of the politics of medicine with this new emphasis on wokeness, possibly at the expense of competence. Dr. Diana Blum is a board-certified neurologist. See, that's where that brain comes in. She completed her medical school training at University of Chicago School of Medicine and her neurology residency training at Stanford University Medical Center. She's currently in private practice in Silicon Valley out in California, where she focuses on the chronic management of Parkinson's disease patients. When not practicing clinical medicine, Dr. Blum is a fierce patient and physician advocate. She defends Hippocratic Oath medicine and the sanctity of the doctor-patient relationship through education and activism welcome to the show dr Blum. thank you thank you marilyn well right now i'm almost embarrassed that stanford is both of our alma maters with their new woke language that they just came out with but boy that's a topic for a whole show we may (laughs) even get into that but what i'm gonna start with just because it's so exciting to have a neurologist with me. The brain is such a mystery. And I think it's a mystery to everybody except neurologists and neurosurgeons, I guess. But um, just, I'd, I'd just like you to say how the brain connects everything together. How, how do you put together the central nervous system and all the stuff that goes in to making us who we are?
2: Well, it's uh, it's to, to understand how the nervous system works. I think we have to go back in time and really understand how it evolved because over time we have changed how our nervous system uh, wires, fires. And there's this saying called when neurons fire together, they wire together. And m- the point of that is that Despite how naturally it's evolved over millions of years, and I'm going to go into that in just a second, we do have the capability of controlling how we react to certain things. And I think understanding that connection between brain and heart uh, physiologically can help us actually have more control over our responses. So, so let's go back. Let's go back uh, several million years when we all lived in caves and survival of our species was was largely dependent on having a robust, sympathetic nervous system. And what I mean by sympathetic, Sympathetic is our fight, flight, or freeze response, which mobilized our body to react quickly when there's signs of, of danger, like that proverbial, you know, tiger ready to jump out and eat us. What didn't get very involved um, was our parasympathetic nervous system, and and that is responsible for our calming of our bodies and doing maintenance and repair work, such as digestion and sleep. Right? Nature primed us to place things like sleeping and digestion on the back burner because the priority at the time was not to become dinner ourselves. <laughs> so, fast forward, you know, millions of years to. Today, we're living in a modern society where most of us do not fear a tiger jumping out and and killing us or eating us at any given moment, yet our bodies are still naturally wired to react to, you know, pretty much anything around us with that constant real threat in mind. And I I think coming out of the pandemic now, the the sensitivity to seeing threat um, is is heightened. Um, and when I talk about kind of the the heart and, and brain connection is sometimes when our sympathetic nervous system is revved up, there are signs like our heart starts beating faster. You know, we start uh, breathing in a different pattern. So these are all things that can be clues if we are in tune with our body to know when our nervous system
1: is being activated. Wow. Um, No, that's great. I think that's a great explanation that anyone can understand. Go on. So uh,
2: I guess the question is, um, you know, how much do we want to understand the connection between the feeling part of our brain and the thinking part of the brain? And um, understanding how those two parts are connected can help us, you know, um, be a little bit more uh, mindful when when we're reacting to, you know, things in our brain. Day to day lives, whether it's relationships or um, you know, even when we're listening to the news or this conversation, if we're noticing we're getting tense or upset about what we're hearing, you know, being able to sit in that discomfort and not react long, long enough for our thinking brain to actually process what's being said, um, because we're we're in a you know difficult moment in history where there's a lot of things we're grappling with. And and how we process the information and react to one another, I think, um, is important if we're going to, you know, not have another civil war here.
1: Well, and one, of, this is one of the reasons I wanted you to talk about that, because what we're going to talk about for some people can be a touchy subject or ignite some people's emotions. And this connection and this idea of being able to look at things from a truly brain way not an emotional way has to be something that we introduce into the conversation when we talk about this new thing of wokism and when it rolled over into medicine to me and i think probably to you it was the last straw in trying to pull on somebody's emotions and make them not think about consequences. So, we're going to go in and talk about some of that. But first, I want to get a little bit of your background so the audience kind of can see where you're coming from, huh? if I must say, even emotionally, that helps form what you're going to say that's some critical thinking. So what's, what's your background? How did you get into medicine? Uh, how did you get to America? <laughs> well, so um, I was born in the former Soviet Union.
2: Um, technically at the, uh, if now that it, everything's broken, you can say I'm from the Ukraine, um, which is a little ironic because I grew up speaking Russian, not Ukrainian. Um, At at the time, everyone, you know, in Soviet Union had to speak Russian. So, um, but I never really identified myself with one or the other, because back then, and this is, uh, you know, in the early 80s, late 70s, we were just considered dirty Jews. And I say dirty Jew because that was the name that, you know, proverbially everyone would call a, a Jid. Um, and my family um, prior to that were, were descendants of Holocaust survivors, uh, my grandparents. And so um in the early eighties, they made the difficult decision and gave everything up. And, um, but both my parents used to be physicians actually gave it all up. And I, uh, we left as refugees. We, we didn't have a country that accepted us. Um, we were just waiting for almost a year for a country to accept us. And um, we ended up in San Francisco, California. So that's where I, I grew up. Um, of course, my parents were not physicians when they came here. They, they didn't even speak English. So, um, you know, took any job that would pay the bills and put food on the table. Um, and that's basically my how I grew up until um, I got to high school. And I'm going to just call out my name. The high school I went to was Lowell in San Francisco. And that high school has been in the news um, recently because of the effects of wokeism. Now, for me, that high school was my ticket, my door to a better life. Um, and so, you know, my parents were poor. We, you know, obviously couldn't afford private school. Um, but, you know, the rumor was it that if you can get into Lowell, you would have a good education and that would open up doors. And And that's exactly what happened. From there, you know, I went to college and so somewhere along the way decided, oh, I, I love the brain. And um, that's basically how I got into medicine. I didn't initially realize that working with Parkinson's Station, which was always going to be a passion of mine, um, required going to medical school. So (laughs) a very roundabout way, but here we are.
1: Well, good. Thanks for that story. Uh, I think it so much of how we grew up and our past really does help form how we think about things and as society changes and our culture changes. When you have that kind of background, you can see sometimes just like when you were talking about the cavemen and how our nervous system evolved, how our attitudes evolve. And if you've had a past that's seen some of the consequences, it makes you a little more alert when we start seeing what's happening now with this whole woke stuff. Let's kind of go kind of go over What's happening in medical schools now? What have you seen? I mean, are the tests the same? What, what is it that's going on now that really kind of piqued your interest in all this wokeism? Well, I think even before before
2: medical school, um, what I'm noticing is a change in how what the criteria is of how we even look at potential medical students. You know, when um, I was interviewed, uh, the questions um, were more you know what makes me want to be a doctor, what you know, giving me certain scenarios, probably ethical dilemmas, um, in, you know, how do I view things? What are my critical thinking skills? And, and you know, every interview I had was slightly different um, because it was really the, the interviewers were trying to get to know me and will I be a good and effective healer? And am I competent enough to take on the responsibility of caring for someone's life? Um, So that is what I think has changed. Now the priority seems to be meeting quotas. And the quotas are not so much, you know, a certain standard of education or, you know, it's, you know, your skin color, your immutable characteristics based on genitalia or sexual preferences. I mean, these are have nothing to do with the kind of, you know, doctor one will eventually be in terms of being able to provide competent, good quality medical care. And yet, this seems like it's the front line of what is actually being prioritized. Um, So quotas to me are quite scary because that's, you know, how my country that we fled from used to um, do things. And um, yeah, I'll stop there for a second. (laughs) But the, the other thing that I'm seeing is that we're, We're getting rid of certain um, standards that actually are able to show competency. So, the MCAT is a good example. Now, English was not a first language for me. And my parents, you know, like I mentioned, were. (laughs) not wealthy. So I couldn't afford the SAT prep classes and MCATs. So I understand that, you know, there is, a, a, if, if you can't afford extra classes, and you can prep and, but there is a certain minimal standard that you still have to show even with the classes. And when you're getting rid of the tests completely and you can never show that someone has that minimal standard, then you're actually doing them a disservice because you're setting them up for failure once they are in those clinical settings and are being challenged. Um, however, <laughs> what we're seeing is instead of letting the folks that really are not thriving, um actually fail, because at the end of the day, if you let, if you just pass them along, you have an incompetent doctor who has someone's life in their hands. What we're seeing is, um, unfortunately, these uh, students are not being failed. They're just being passed along because failing them would be a sign of white supremacy. And so you're churning out you know, future physicians who do not have the skills to practice medicine safely. Um, so that's the end result that I think we're here freaking out about is because we're now seeing the impact of that Lowered standard medical education and ultimately care.
1: Okay, well, on on that low note, uh, I just want to take a break. And as always, and every one of the listeners has heard me talk about this. Speaking of good standards, is CoFix RX. This is a nasal spray that came out, oh, gee, about six, seven, eight months into the COVID epidemic. And early on, people realized that povidone iodine was a real antiviral powerhouse. And that's what's in Cofix RX. It gives a mixture, the exact right mixture of iodine, vitamin D. And uh, xylitol, all of which are have some antiviral properties. Anyway, I use it and have been using it, gee, for quite a while now. And I make sure I kind of give a squirt up my nose whenever I go out to the grocery store. When I come back from the grocery store, when I go out, and um, as they say, knock on wood, um, we've been quite healthy and we can get Cofix RX at pharmacies you can get a mail order and we have a little button for it right on our page and you can scroll down the page and click the button read all about it and get a discount if you purchase it from the website so i have to say i love recommending it and another great reason it's made in the USA and invented by united states doctors so CoFix Rx, my new best friend. I love it. I hope you'll try it because in this new year, 2023, we want you to be healthy.
0: These days, every time you turn on the news, it seems like there's a new threat to your health. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, Boost your immunity. Go to healthycell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. Healthycell.com code OUTLOUD. Healthycell.com code OUTLOUD. We wouldn't go a day without washing our hands, brushing our teeth, and washing our nose. Well, wait, we wash our nose? Yes, the number one place where bacteria, viruses, and pollen enter the body is through the nose. So the average person breathes over 23,000 times a day. That's 23,000 opportunities for bacteria, viruses, and irritants to get into your nose and make you sick. For an extra layer of protection, wash your nose with Clear. That is Clear, X-L-E-A-R. Pick up a bottle for you and your family today.
1: So, speaking of being healthy, let's get back to this whole idea of medical students and competence. Years ago, there was something called the Flexner Report, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it was around 1910. And this was a fellow who was commissioned to examine medical schools. And you have to remember, doctors didn't always go to medical school. They used to become doctors by being an apprentice. So it was a big deal when actual medical school started in the 1800s, what it was about, 1830s or so. Because actually, some American doctors had trained in Scotland, um, and that's how they got an actual MD degree. So anyway, medical schools were examined to see, were they teaching people the right things, or were they just kind of pop-up shops? So tell us about this Flexner report, Dr. Blum.
2: Well- Prior to 1910, which is when the uh, Flexner Report actually came out, um, I mean, we had a lot of voodoo magic quackery medicine. Um, there really was just about anyone and their mother hanging a shingle and calling themselves healer. And um, there was no standardization. So, you know, bloodletting and <laughs> you name it, it was it, all comers. And a lot of people, unfortunately, were, were getting hurt. Um, so the uh, AMA, I'm or was it the AAMC Uh, that I might need to be uh, fat checked. I can't remember if it was the AMA or the AMC, but um, they basically asked, Abraham Flexner to go around and see what is the status of the, at the time I think it was 155 uh, medical schools were were open and after this famous report a majority of those schools were actually closed because of the um, poor standards um, based on the first uh, hand inspections and I think they included Canadian medical schools as well but um, the A a good number, and and they were not predominantly Black, Um, there were definitely all-comer medical schools, but unfortunately, five of the seven Black medical schools were also closed as part of the findings of that report. Um, Now, many argue that it was because of Abraham Flexner's um, advocacy that the two actually remained open because they, too, were substandard in many ways, but he advocated um, to get extensions so that they can bring up their standards um, in order to keep them uh, open. And and those were the Meharry and Howard that, that we have today. So that basically was the beginning of the standardization of medical education was his report. And, and I do worry <laughs> we're kind of going to pre-Flexner days today um, as we ignore scientific method principles. That was one of the things that he um, promoted in medical research um, and, and practice. And um, also he, uh, I think, contributed to the oversight of the state licensing boards, or, or at least those were established soon after his uh, report.
1: Well, it's interesting talking about the standardization and licensing and all these things that we take for granted now. And like you say, we're starting to move away from that, this association of medical colleges you know they're wanting to make the as it's called MCAT which is the medical test that we were talking about before and and that you mentioned want to make it pass fail and it's a sort of thing we all know these standardized tests don't tell the whole story and just like you mentioned if you don't have money you might not be able to take one of those prep courses so it gives somebody with money more of an advantage but you have to have something. I mean, what do you think would would be a good way to standardize some sort of test? Or do you think we should still have the MCATs?
2: Well, I absolutely think we need to still have the MCATs, even though I myself hated having to take them, um, as I'm sure most um, students, but it is a, a measure not not just necessarily of do I remember the organic chemistry formula. That's not the point. the The, the point is the critical thinking skills to be able to answer some of these third order questions. And because if if you think about it, it's it's asking you know not just did you memorize this, uh, you know, little factoid but can you think three steps ahead and use that knowledge in actual you know manipulation of uh whatever the scenario is to come to eventually uh uh well in medicine like a differential diagnosis so if you have all this information thrown out at you how do you synthesize it to be able to come up with you know a, a, a plausible uh what's going on with the patient kind of thing i think i for a split second got confused between MCAT and our boards because that too is being manipulated. Um, but but going back, there was one thing you mentioned and I wanted to circle back and I lost my train of
1: thought, I apologize. Um, what? A neurologist losing her train of thought. Oh, <laughs> God forbid. <laughs> um, you had, oh, the
2: AAMC and the, nope, I lost it. I'm sorry.
1: That's all right. When it comes back, just tell us. This is this is a very it's, you know, again, why I wanted to even mention the brain and emotions. This is an emotional topic. It's an emotional topic for people who struggled and wanted to be the best and and the idea that somebody's gonna chip away at that sense that we're all striving for excellence. And I don't want that beaten in these younger kids that you're not supposed to strive for excellence because it's okay not to be very good. It's not rem- okay.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and I remembered what I was going to say. So okay, if the, go if ahead. If, if the issue, <laughs> because if the issue is we don't have the money for the prep test, right? But we have all agreed for many decades now that the the this MCAT is very much correlated with outcomes, right? With how well uh, a student ends up doing. Then then let's le- level up the playing field by giving the equal opportunity to taking the MCAT prep test, right? My point is a lot of these medical stud- schools are getting rid of the MCAT instead of maybe giving resources to, sh- to let students from disadvantaged backgrounds prove that they are capable. Does that make any sense so the the if the end result is we want more representation of certain minorities then give them an opportunity to prove that they are capable not getting rid of the standards to to prove that they are capable does that make
1: sense well uh, of course and it truly does make sense um i guess what bothers me so much is there's this, it's almost like an assumption that being Black, which I am and everybody knows, means that you're inferior. And George Bush made a comment, I don't know whether he made it up or one of his writers did, but it really stuck with me when he talked about the soft bigotry of low expectations. And this is where we're going. It's almost like saying, well, you're black, you're Hispanic, you know, any color but Asian, because Asians are smarter, therefore they're lawsuit against Harvard for limiting the number of Asians they're admitting, but that's again a whole other story. Suddenly Asians aren't a minority when it comes to academics. So if you're American Indian, black, Hispanic, oh yeah, we know that you. It's almost like it's not just that you're disadvantaged, but that you're not as bright. Therefore, no matter what we do for you, we just still have to lower the standard. And that makes me mad.
2: Well, and you couple that with how they're describing what used to be, you know, imp- very standard um, criteria like being on time to rounds or, you know, there's certain things that, you know, in medicine, you have, you have to show responsibility before you take on, you know, the ability to take care of someone's life, right? Well, if, if now being on time and, and do, you know, completing your notes and all of this is just labeled as white supremacy traits, then, what does that mean to the patient who is on the receiving end of those that do not believe in
1: being on time, completing their notes?
2: Am I making any sense? Well, it, <laughs>
1: it's you know, it's funny because you say that it totally makes sense. When I went to law school, we had a course called legal research and writing and uh, we had TAs teach us. So these were our peers, basically just a year or two, ahead of us in school. And they gave a time and they gave a due date for a legal memo that we had to do. And a couple of people in the class, and there are 30 students in each group, didn't turn it in on time. And they got an F. And they were stunned, you know, because they were so-called bright people. And the teacher said, You're supposed to be lawyers and time is of the essence in law. And if your brief is due in court at 5 p.m. on X day, that's when it's due. So tell it to the judge and I'm the judge right now. You get an F, your brief didn't come in on time. So in that legal realm, it's that same sort of thing that there's certain things that you should not be exempt from.
2: Exactly. And then the bottom line is, is that in medicine, you you know, there's so much unpredictability. So being able to be challenged and think on your feet and do things, you know, that um, there's a learning curve that, you know, there's a reason there's a hierarchy in medicine because the medical student knows and has less experience than the resident and then similarly than the attending. But somehow hierarchy is now considered white supremacy. So you have medical students, you know, uh, questioning decisions from residents. It's like everything is turned upside down and the people with the most knowledge and, and experience to, to make decisions are not always the ones in, in the decision making process you know, uh, positions. Um, and and the biggest one that I think uh, worries me is the inability that attendings are reporting, and of course, this privately, because they're afraid of being knocked down from promotion if they're in academic settings, um, to say this publicly, but um, is to give feedback. So, I mean, I remember being, you know, we, what did we call it, pimped when we were <laughs> when we were in medical school, but, you know, on the fly asking a thousand questions. And yeah, even if I got 995 of them wrong, I learned from the experience. And, um, and now you're not even allowed to, to challenge people because God forbid, you know, that's a microaggression. So I, it, it, the world is upside down and medical education, you know, there's, there's a few things I care about. I care that my doctor knows, you know, how to diagnose and treat, I care that my engineer knows to make sure that that bridge doesn't fall. I don't care the color or the gender or the sexual orientation of the engineer or the doctor. I care that they are competent and know how to take care of the things that they're supposed to, you know, have the basic competence to do. And that is no longer guaranteed in our society.
1: Well, you know what's so sad to me? I, I think about Ben Carson and the famous case he did at Hopkins, one of one of my old workplaces, um, of separating Siamese twins that were connected and their brains were connected. So obviously, quite a difficult operation and trying to save and spare both lives. The couple was from Germany, and I was imagining: were they sitting there thinking, one? I doubt they paid any attention to what his color was, that this was the neurosurgeon who could separate their babies. Mm -hmm. But now, if somebody were to look at a Black neurosurgeon, would they say, is that person as competent as the white guy? In my day, Black people, women were actually considered smarter because people knew they had to work harder to get where they were. And I hate to see it go the other direction.
2: Well, it's just so funny because that is how, um, you know, Jews uh, as physicians were considered in Russia is everyone wanted to go see the Jew because they knew if the Jew made it into medical school, then they must be smart. That's not how we should be labeling society, people in the United States. You know, this is this is so backwards thinking. Um, and uh, yeah, I fast forward another decade, I'm honestly going to be afraid of of who are the doctors that are out there taking care of me and my kids and the rest of society.
1: Well, when we get back from our break, we're going to talk about that a little more and talk about some solutions and try not to just be complainers, because I I complain about people who just blather on about this is wrong, that's wrong. But let's see if we can come up with some solutions for how we can get a more diverse medical uh, workforce and uh, what we can do about it, what we as doctors, what we as a society can do about it without lowering standards. So I just want to thank everybody for listening to America Out Loud Pulse. You know, we started last April, April, 2022, and the show is just great. I love it. Because we've got five different shows. We've got me on Mondays. Tuesdays, we have Dr. Jordan Vaughn and Dr. Stuart Tankersley. Wednesdays with Dr. Peter McCulloch and Malcolm Outloud, And Thursdays with Dr. Peter Bregan and Ginger Ross Bregan. And we're having a new special guest Friday. All shows go direct to podcast in 24 hours. That's the best part because... You don't have to schedule when you're gonna listen. The episodes are in lots of the podcast networks, Apple and Spotify, Pandora, TuneIn and Stitcher, iHeart. So make it easy. Bookmark AmericaOutloud.com forward slash pulse.
0: Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations americaoutloud.com seven amazing years we know that if america fails the world will fail it is incumbent upon us to carry the torch for liberty america Outloud talk radio the liberty and justice for all
1: So back with Dr. Blum, we have, okay, this change in medical education. There's even a group called, what is it? White Coats for Black Lives that I, and I've talked about this before, how a few very loud people can take over the narrative because it's hard for me to imagine that people are willing to have standards lowered but this group is talking about their job is to dismantle dominant exploitative systems in the United States that are relying on anti-Black racism, colonialism, since heteropatriarchy, white supremacy, and capitalism. Since when should that be a criteria for a medical organization? My goodness. Well, you- it's, no, I just
2: say, have the you scariest, heard of these folks. I've, I, I have. It's, it's probably one of the scariest things I've heard because we are, we're going. Um, the to me this speaks to medical ethics violations, right? When you're putting the, uh, some kind of arbitrary collective, you know, social justice goal over Hippocratic oath medicine, which prioritizes the individual human being, you took an oath to take care of. So the the organizations that are pushing this social justice and, um, you know, the organization Do No Harm Medicine actually did some survey, I think,
1: the
2: the last I saw was 72% of our top ranked medical schools are injecting this type of identities, politics, social justice, you know, emphasis, many are starting to rewrite even the hypocrisy oath that medical students are, are taking. And this is completely, uh, in my opinion, unethical, because if you think about prior, you know, lessons we're supposed to learn from uh, in our own history, like the eugenics movement, right? Putting some kind of a arbitrary collective anything over the individual human life never ends up well not for humanity and not for medicine and and that's literally what organizations like White Goats for Black Lives are promoting
1: well, it's it's really rather sick. And sadly, there are places that need to be addressed. One of the things that you touched on briefly and I know that you've gone done a deep dive into this is some of the scientific research that, revolves around some of these racial issues, where the conclusion is written even before the study. They don't even do the standard hypothesis and work backwards, like what you're trying to prove or disprove. They just want to prove what they want to say. And um, can you That's think right. of any studies offhand that have been, actually, I'll call them bogus? Yeah, well, the I think the one of the biggest problems, as you
2: mentioned, is the um, the level of evidence that's now required. Required to, um, you know, actually change clinical guidelines um, feels like it's being lowered. And a perfect example of this is if you look at gender affirming care, right? There have not been any placebo-controlled, double-blind studies where that used to be the, you know, level one evidence before uh, organization like the AAP would give any kind of recommendations. And yet here we have completely adopted this one-way approach of, you know, affirm, affirm, affirm. Um, And often it's associated with giving medications that are, you know, have irreversible consequences that, Unfortunately, patients are not being counseled on, so there's no informed consent, um, and, and sometimes even worse when it comes to some of these surgeries. So that is a perfect example, because when I did a, a deeper dive in, into this, a lot of these uh, studies that they claim to support this uh, you know, gender-affirming care were observational studies who, that, that, that basically were fishing expeditions with a predetermined, you know, here's what we wanna show. So now let's go find the data to support what we really wanna, you know, show. This isn't science. This is really, when I say pre-Flexner days, that's how things used to work, pre-Flexner. And here we are adopting the same, you know, unscientific unscientific method
1: principles. Well, Well, the thing that's interesting, what it does is it makes people not pay attention. To things that should be done, studies that should be done that are looking at racial things. I just, being an anesthesiologist, I remember be, the days before pulse oximeters, you know, supposed to look at somebody and see if they were turning blue. Um, pulse oximeters was one of the greatest things that ever happened to anesthesia. And one of the companies had done a study, and it's something as a practicing physician was a question that we were asking. If people with darker skin, does the pulse oximeter have the same rating as somebody with lighter skin? Because what it does is it's reading the color of the red blood cell through that little light that's, you know, when they stick it over your finger and then a computer translates that into a number. So the skin color would matter. So they did a big study and fortunately, the, the one drawback in the study, it was in the lab, not in the operating room, but it was rare to have differences between white and black people. So this is an important thing for people to know. But we see some of the studies, it's like there's some that say people have black doctors do better than people with white doctors. And then they're suggesting, well, then people should ask for a black doctor. What if a white person asked for a white doctor? Oh, my goodness. I,
2: uh. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And and those studies actually. Again, when you actually look at their correlational studies. So I can say, you know, there's that famous, there were um, less shark attacks when people ate more ice cream. <laughs> now, does eating ice cream have anything to do with shark attacks? No. But if you want to, you know, go fishing for a correlation and you get enough, you know, very uh, cherry-picked data samples to to show that look i have this correlation here then you can make anything work so um again when you actually peel the layers of these actual studies there's a lot of conflict of interest when you look at the funding sources a lot of them come from activist organizations that you know clearly have an agenda. And what's most disappointing is our academic journals, which are publishing it. And when you look at the conflict of interest within our academic journals, you find, you know, unfortunately, there there's um a revolving door between, you know, the the academicians who sit on the peer review committees and who gets the grants from our government on certain uh you know projects. And I know I sit here saying all this sounding like a conspiracy theory, but, you know, today's conspiracy theories are tomorrow's truth. And the more we're looking into individual studies and, you know, forcing uh, retractions because we now have evidence as to why these are not reproducible, the, you know, m- plenty of flaws. Now we're actually seeing the studies are getting retracted. The problem is they're very quietly getting retracted. The media is not covering it. You know, it's just, (laughs) it was a big hype when they were first published, but now they're kind of quietly just, you know, going away uh, without the public being actually educated on why the retractions are are now happening.
1: Well, I think, fortunately, the public has become more aware of Um, I don't know if I can go all the way to the extreme and call it pseudoscience, but let's just say not good science because of what happened with COVID. I always swear on this show I'm not going to talk about COVID because some of our other hosts do, but this was Sort of a uh, the canary in the coal mine for bad science, and people recognize when you have these people who said one thing, then they say another, but don't go back and say, I'm sorry, it's kind of these retractions. We've never heard Dr. Fauci say, I'm sorry, gee, mass didn't really work, none of that stuff. So people have become aware, and I hope. Doctors have become more aware because they're we're certainly the ones who read the studies. Patients kind of read the distillation that you get on CNN or USA Today. But some of these conclusions, you know, shark attacks and ice cream. And I just hope doctors won't be fooled. But going back to what you said about what kind of students they're breeding, that will they be fooled
2: <laughs> well that's that's exactly right because i don't think these students actually know how to critically analyze a research paper i don't i don't think they understand or are being taught what does it mean to power a study what does it mean to consider confounding variables and how do you account for them both statistically and in the design of a study. Like, I don't think any of that is being taught. Instead, we're being taught, you know, social justice warrior stuff, not how to analyze critical scientific papers that actually will impact, you know, patient care. It is mind boggling, to be honest.
1: All this other stuff that goes in to whether a child is advantaged or disadvantaged, and that to me seems more reasonable than just say, no, you're no longer an individual. You're not a kid. You're a black kid. You're a Latinx kid or a white supremacist kid who hates brown skin kids. Uh, so, I mean, don't you think we have to get rid of that first?
2: Well, that, that's exactly right. I mean, I think the, the basic kind of how, you know, treat, your neighbor as you would like thyself, just basic kindness. Like that somehow is being trampled on over, you know, this, um, uh, how should we put it? Um, it, it <laughs> Like So I'll give you an example. I volunteer. It, I actually do teach science in a underprivileged school. Um, this year, it's third graders. Last year, I did fourth graders. And what I saw, you know, originally when I signed up to do this, I wanted to A, understand what are the challenges in these, you know, mostly minority communities and obviously socioeconomically disadvantaged schools. And I thought it was going to be lack of resources. But I go in there and, you know, there's like thousands of dollars, like of these science kits, these FOSS kits that I'm like, wow, I don't remember anything like this with beakers and magnets. And but the kids don't know how to read then science and to be able to use the, you mm-hmm. know, the kids. So all this money and resources are just wasted because instead of putting the attention, and last year, these were fourth graders, right? So it, to K one, two really getting the, the reading down so that then you can build on concepts that's not happening. And so then you fast forward and then, you know, if, the kids that have not had those basic standards are then allowed to just continue to move forward. So my point is solutions is, yes, you put that money and resources into K-1-2 reading, like basic math, like the, 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 the foundational skills that then the higher order learning builds on. The, without that, I'm not sure, you, you know, you can throw as much money as you want. But without those basic fundamental skills of reading and, and basic math, I don't see anything much, hap- you know, <laughs> getting fixed. Um, and that's not happening. That is not, you know, i rather see four teachers in the classroom with a one to five student ratio and spend the money on that instead of wasting the money on, you know, pretty iPads and teach those kids how to read and and build their self-confidence that way. Um but no, we, we have a lot of pretty gadgets, a lot of, you know, every kid has an iPad <laughs> they, and they know how to scroll, to look at, pre, you know, but there's no. Well,
1: they're looking at TikTok on it rather, you know, where you don't have to read, just look at people doing stupid stuff.
2: Um, Yeah, no, that's where we need to put our emphasis. And um, having now, you know, I'm a product of public schools, and I send my kids to public schools. And now I've had a taste of a variety of public schools. That is is where we need to have the biggest reform our K through 12 education. You cannot fix this by the time you get to the medical school level. So if if the res- if the goal is we want more representation you know of diverse backgrounds in medicine, you got to put the emphasis in K through 12. You, you don't lower standards in medical school.
1: And I look at it and I'll look at it on the emotional side as a black person Who grew up with parents who always told me I was as good as anybody else and that you never had to take low to anybody made me want to be excellent. It made me want to be an excellent doctor. And I get quite disturbed, I'll use that nice, calm word, when students are told to be victims rather than telling students stories of. You know, Dr. Durham, the first Black doctor who was a slave and one of his owners apprenticed him as a doctor and he had a huge private practice in New Orleans and spoke three languages, had patients of all colors. We need to hear those sort of stories early on so kids know they can achieve and they can succeed. So you combine that with actually teaching kids reading and then teaching them that they are strong survivors and not victims, you're going to have minority doctors falling out of the woodwork. And you won't have to have all this artificial stuff, Johnny come lately, that they're doing now. Agree. Agree. Well, on that agreeable note, I just can't thank you enough for coming on the show. I love talking with you. We've talked in other venues. And um you just have a lot of common sense and which, as they say, ain't so common anymore. <laughs>
2: Sadly. And- <laughs> Sadly.
1: <laughs> well, so you're out in California, what in, in the hotbed of wokeism. And I congratulate you for surviving and staying sane. For now. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Well, you're quite welcome. And come back on the show anytime. Oh, my pleasure. It will be my pleasure. Okay. And thanks, everybody, for listening. I just love it that the show is doing well and that people are listening to the podcast and we do have a new feature. Well, it's not so new anymore, but it's questions. You can send them in to AmericaOutloud.com forward slash pulse. And it can be for the guest or the host. And we'll try to get you an answer direct to your email. First names are fine. And, um, or we can say, the answer out loud on the air and so thank you everyone for listening you know about the podcast you know how you can hear us because you're listening right now so whether you agree or have other opinions please share the show so until next week say it loud i'm free and i'm proud